Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Praise you, Lord Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that falls to me. And he divided his living between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took his journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in loose living. And when he had spent everything, a great famine arose in that country, and he began to be in want. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have fed on the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and make merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what this meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Lo, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured, all, has devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make merry and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, be blessed and filled with joy by these words. Bless them to meet the need of each heart. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A certain woman was teaching her class of children this story that we just heard read from today's gospel how the lost son returned to his dad, how he found a warm welcome. She told in vivid detail the poor choices that made the young man's life worse and worse. She described the father's desire to see him come home and the father's joy when they reconciled. She remarked on the older brother's resentment at seeing his sibling celebrated with a steak dinner. She then invited the class to some discussion with a question. What do you think, class, 
was the saddest part of the story. A hand shot to the sky. The child's voice responded, the killing of the fatted calf was the saddest. I've raised a few cows and can testify to sadness in sending them to auction or handing them over to the butcher. But I suspect Jesus was pointing to a deeper sadness. The older brother failed to appreciate his father's joy at his brother's return. The older brother hadn't left home. He'd waited rather than waste his inheritance. He hadn't yet received a lavish party, much less one that cost the family a valuable calf. He felt bitter. He thought his father had lost his mind. And so he failed to bless, to bring joy to his dad. You may recall that Jesus told this story to a group of scrupulous religious people who criticized him for celebrating with lapsed Jews. It comes as the last of three stories that focus on God's joy in recovering his errant children. Why is it that God gets so blessed by this? Henry Nouwen summarizes it in his book, The Return of the Prodigal, by contrasting three sets of contrasting questions. He first says, the question is not, how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not, he suggests, how I come to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by God? And finally, the question is not, how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? We could stop right there and think about it and get back to the singing but I can't get my mind off the fatted calf. You know, the younger brother came to his senses when he got really hungry. He was feeding pigs, which wasn't exactly kosher for a Jewish kid. And it dawned on him that the swine had better victuals than he did. Have you ever had the experience of being deprived by food? I've had it on a backpacking trip and some other times when I found myself fantasizing about pizzas and cheeseburgers and waffle fries. This kid thought about pita bread. He dreamed about tasting it like his dad's servants did. Perhaps he'd enjoy it with a dip of finely ground chickpeas, lightly seasoned and blended into some olive oil. Maybe, just maybe, if he approached his dad on his knees begging forgiveness, he could return as a servant and taste it for real. And when he put his imagination into action and took steps, he found an adoring father, a warm hug, fresh clothes, and not just bread, but sizzling steak. Turns out that what blessed his father wasn't all the penance that he'd planned so much as the simple fact of his return. When the son got a taste of the father's gracious hospitality, he saw goodness beyond his wild dreams. He tasted to see 
his dad's love for him. Contrasts a bit with how things went in Eden, where the opposite happened. There the serpent planted seeds of doubts about God's goodness. It encouraged the woman to taste forbidden fruit, to open her eyes to the Creator's supposedly ulterior motives. She saw the fruit as pleasant to her eyes. She tasted it and gave it to her husband. And now when her eyes were opened and his, they didn't see God's goodness. They just saw their own nakedness and they hid in shame. Our psalm advises us to take a wiser path. It invites us, in the words of some translations, not the one we sang tonight, but um, that good old Anglican work, the King James Version of the Bible, to magnify the Lord together. We grow as we see God's magnificent grace and as we declare it to others. In fact, instead of Eve's example, we might imitate the Blessed Mary, the mother of our Lord. The Protestant reformers believe that she composed her beautiful Magnificat that was sung tonight as a reflection on our Psalm 34. We find it easy to magnify our difficulties. We find it easy to magnify the evil in our world. We have all kinds of media and thoughts from the prince of the power of the air to encourage us to do this. The psalm we have for tonight is realistic about the plight of even those who love the Lord. There's no prosperity gospel in it. It does speak, after all, of the righteous person's many troubles. Those troubles may come, as the psalm describes it, as fears. The psalmist even alludes to such troubles by speaking of the need we have for refuge at times. Such troubles may leave people afflicted, broken-hearted, and crushed in spirit. And the prescript to this psalm reminds us that David composed it during a time of his life when he was fleeing for his life from Saul and felt betrayed by those who owed him gratitude. So when we come to this psalm and think about magnifying the Lord, there isn't a need necessarily to minimize our pain or our cancer. In my household, the smallest spider appears very large. It gets so magnified sometimes. There's the challenges of raising kiddos and on and on we can go. But we don't need to turn a telescope on them e either and see them as larger than they are. When we do, we might forget the magnitude of God's kindness displayed by the Father in the Gospel story. So keep your eyes on the goodness of Jesus. Keep your eyes on the greatness of the Father. Keep your eyes on the presence of the Holy Spirit. Bless the Lord and bring God joy by returning to God again and again with your need and your awe of him. Our reading from Joshua 
needs a little backdrop. You'll recall that when Israel arrived at the border of Canaan under Moses, they sent a dozen troops into the land to recon it, to search it out. They saw it as pleasant to the eyes. They even tasted a bit of its agricultural abundance. But they focused even more on their smallness when they saw the largeness of the inhabitants of the land. And in the process, the God who brought them out of Egypt got shrunk and almost disappeared from their vision altogether. Only Joshua and Caleb magnified the Lord, saw him large and huge, and so pushed the challenges ahead to the periphery. The rest turned back in fear and perished in the wilderness for decades. And then when the next generation approached the land, this time under Joshua, they just sent out two to gather intelligence. The two crossed the Jordan and went to Jericho. They got to taste Rahab's hospitable faith that magnified the mighty deeds of the Lord. They didn't deny the dangers. They hid on a roof. Later they hid in the hills until the coast was clear to bring back their report to Joshua. But they returned with a faith that God was big enough to deliver the land to them. They tasted and they saw the Lord's sufficiency. And then in our reading today, Israel has just crossed the Jordan on dry land, a, a place called Gilgal. The name suggests that God has rolled away their burdens. It meant that Israel had left the shame of slavery and unbelief behind. The dry crossing testified that God could save Israel from her enemies as God had done at the Red Sea. Centuries later, John the Baptizer carried out his ministry in the same Jordan River to signify similar blessings. God rolls away our shame in baptism, freeing us from sin and from Satan God is able to save completely those who come to him, like the lost son came to the loving father. The Lord's mercy endures forever. Jesus received this baptism of John and was declared God's beloved son, endued with the power of the Holy Spirit, and were identified with him in baptism. So magnify the Lord. Remind yourself of these blessings when you enter and leave this place by the baptismal font. God has rolled away your shame and adopted you as his children and heirs. We live by grace, not by disgrace. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. The Holy Spirit rests upon us to lead us into worship and to service in Christ as our epistle says, we are a new creation. So stop looking at yourself and others with merely worldly judgments. Taste and see how God sees you in Christ, St. Paul tells us. You know, our world is dominated by what gets called identity politics. And Mandy Smith recently pointed out how in a world like that, we need to hear this. Now, God has created, and scripture celebrates things like nationality, and gender, and ethnicity, and age. 
And by the way, I can celebrate the fact that I'm older than most of you here. And we can celebrate gifts and we can celebrate callings. I get a kick out of doing what I'm doing right now. But those things aren't all we are and they're not even the main things about we are who we are. What it's important for us to understand these realities about ourselves and one another, the most important truth, as Father Stephen often reminds us, is that our lives are hidden with Christ and God. So let us exalt his name together. Under Joshua, got a, Israel got a taste that like Abraham, they had a new identity. They were now free people, living by hope. And they signified this at Gilgal by getting all the male Israelis up to date on circumcision. They were liberated, sojourning in a land that was promised but not yet inherited. And so before they did any more reconnaissance work or made any more plans about how to inhabit the land, God had them sit down to a meal and taste. They celebrated Passover. When they'd left Egypt, they had taken balls of flatbread dough with them after celebrating the first Passover. And when they ran out of that bread, they ate manna for years. And now for the first time, they ate from the grain, the fruit of the land. God wanted them to taste and see that the Lord was good. Whether they were eating miraculous manna or homemade bread, they anticipated receiving Jesus, the true bread who comes down from heaven for the life of the world. We need to taste him to see him. Shortly after tasting unleavened bread, Joshua looked up and saw God appeared as a captain of the Lord's army. He told Joshua to take off his shoes like Moses had at the burning bush. He was on holy ground and needed to be barefoot to express his vulnerability, his committed trust, and his routine obedience. Dallas Willard used to say that we should never believe anything bad about God because what we believe about God shapes our life. For better or for worse, it does. Is God mean? Is he a trickster? Is the Heavenly Father tapping his foot or crossing his arms, waiting for us to come groveling back to him as the younger son thought? But he was surprised by joy, wasn't he? He saw that God wasn't just waiting to drop, his father wasn't just waiting to drop the other shoe. And yet, it takes us a lifetime to learn this lesson about who God is in his goodness. That he's a shepherd and we will not want, we may recite over and over again, but it takes a lifetime to learn it deeply. But that doesn't make it any less true. I shall not want. I shall have everything that I need. His mercy endures forever. How is it that we learn this? How is it that we taste so that we can see the Lord's goodness? That is, how do we discover it in our actual experience? 
In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis suggests that we just start acting as if it were true. He has a chapter there called Let's Pretend, which he calls on us to use some holy imagination and suggests that whenever we say the first words of the Lord's Prayer, which are our Father, we're in fact pretending to be God's sons and daughters. To put it bluntly, he says, we are dressing up as Christ. If you like, you are pretending. You are not the Son of God whose will and interests are at one with those of the Father. You are a bundle of self-centered fears, hopes, greed, jealousies, and self-conceit, all doomed to to death. So what's the good of pretending to be what we're not? Lewis continues, when you are not feeling particularly friendly, but know you ought to be, the best thing you can do very often is to put on a friendly manner and behave as if you are a nicer person than you actually are. I got pretty good at this as a pastor for a number of years. And in a few minutes, as we have all noticed, you'll be really feeling friendlier than you were. Very often, the only way to get equality into reality is to start behaving as if you had it already. Well, it's in a similar way, I think, that we taste and so begin to see that the Lord is good, what God has done for us. One of the places this happens is in the vital Christian practice of receiving Holy Eucharist. Jesus says, this is my body given for you, and at least modern minds, and maybe ancient ones too, tell us that this is just some bread and wine. How can it be the body and blood of Christ? We receive the obviously earthly elements of bread and wine as the body and blood of Christ, And in a way, Lewis says, the faith by which we come to the Lord's table is a kind of pretending. Or better, I like to think of it as an act of sacramental imagination. But in that pretending, in this acting as if we are fed with Christ's own life-giving self, we taste and we see that the Lord is good. Maybe one of my favorite scriptures in the New Testament comes on the road to Emmaus when Jesus is revealed to his disciples in the breaking of bread. In the Eastern Orthodox churches, Psalm 34 has often accompanied the reception of Holy Communion. Understood this way, the psalm instructs us to taste and see, to receive bread and wine with a humble, gentle, and glad spirit. Learn habits of prayer and give thanks to put worldly fears into perspective, the psalm tells us. And our prayer book offers lots of marvelous tools for this. One of our favorites, my wife and I, is the general thanksgiving, the end of the office. Don't let your feelings of poverty or your feelings of brokenness keep you away. This table offers food for just such hungers. Trust God to cleanse your lips and to purify your heart. Come, taste, and see the risen Lord at his table. Come as the lost son to the father. God seeks those in the family who have wandered off, and God simply can't wait to welcome them home. 
God can't wait to have us around, even with the garbage we carry around and our half-hearted apologies for it. God is glad to see us. Is all that true? What difference would it really make in how we look at pretty much everything if we were to believe that as deeply as we might? And what would it look like if you and I were to learn to love the way that God loved, the way the Father loved the Son? Again, our epistle from St. Paul tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not holding our trespasses against us. Instead, Jesus became sin, even though he knew no sin, in order to bring us into right relationship with God. And God has given to you and to me this ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. Urge yourself and urge others to be reconciled to God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Bless God, his mercy endures forever. As the psalmist says, blessed is the one who hopes in him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.